0: If you feed ruminants 1% of a seaweed diet, methane production can be shut down anywhere between 50 to 80%. And methane emissions from ruminants is a big contributor to greenhouse emissions.
1: Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode... We will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, my name is Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to this bonus episode of Sciencetown: Carbon Fixing Machines. Carlos Duarte is a professor of marine science and the Tariq Ahmed Jafali Research Chair in Red Sea Ecology in the Red Sea Research Center at KAUST. He's the winner of Catalonia's highest honor in ecology, the Ramon Marguloff Prize, among many others. He sat down with us recently to talk about his work on seagrasses, marine ecology, and the state of our global oceans. Enjoy.
0: So seagrasses, I once termed the ugly ducklings of environmental conservation, <laughs> because nobody really cares about them. So people are passionate about whales, and sharks, and corals, and many other elements of marine life. But uh, but seagrasses never receive any attention, not even by environmental NGOs. Mm. And yet, they play a disproportionately large and important role in the ocean. So seagrasses are a small family of about 60 species of flowering plants out of uh, uh, 300,000 or so flowering plants that are extant today in the biosphere. But those 60 have been able to uh, conquer the oceans. So they're only flowering plants that are able to grow fully submerged in seawater. And uh, even though it's a handful of species, They are hugely important for the marine environment. So they support a very large fraction of the global fisheries because they provide nursery grounds for the juvenile fish and the larvae that eventually then recruit back to the the stocks. Mm -hmm. So maybe about one third of global fisheries is supported by seagrass. They're also very important carbon sinks. So seagrass meadows contribute about 25% 25% of all of the carbon that is locked in marine sediments, even though they occupy something like 0.01% of the area of the seafloor. So they are incredibly important uh, things for carbon. Mm-hmm. And on the past week, there's been a lot of discussion about the Amazon burning and the consequences for oxygen production and, yeah. and uh, carbon storage. But really, a uh, hectare of seagrass meadow is equivalent to 10 hectares of pristine Amazon forest in terms of uh, that carbon sequestration potential and the capacity to release uh, oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then they also uh, have a very important role in uh, dampening uh, waves and uh, currents, and therefore protecting uh, shores from uh, storms, uh, flooding surges, and rising uh, sea level and in fact there's been uh, recently some research that has shown that seagrass play a huge role in holding beaches in place in the tropics so that when uh, seagrass disappear and sometimes uh, hotels for instance not being aware of what seagrass are, they remove seagrass because they feel they might uh, interfere with the guest experience, but the consequence is that they lose the beach. So the seagrasses are also there holding the beach and holding the shoreline to protect the infrastructure, humans, and all of the activities that are linked to beaches. So they're they're a small uh, component of biodiversity in terms of the number of species, but definitely play a disproportionate role that had not received much attention in the past.
1: What led you to focus on this ugly duckling of the ocean?
0: Well, because I had been uh, working early on, on my first steps as a researcher, was working on lakes. So I was trained as a limnologist, which is the equivalent of an oceanographer, but on fresh water. And I was working on lakes and rivers and streams and and, uh, springs. Mm -hmm. And uh, seagrass like plants, aquatic freshwater plants, play a very important role. Mm. So for me, it was natural to uh, continue to flow downstream and eventually get to the shoreline and encounter these uh, flowering plants that have made it into the ocean. Which in fact, they all have freshwater ancestors. So there's a an evolutionary story around my own personal personal story, mm. and then start working on on them because there was a space where they were. Very few nerds were interested in seagrass at all, but now they're really on the global focus as a very important component of the biosphere and and our coastal ecosystems.
1: Now, they were, uh, their distant ancestors were algae in the oceans. They left went to land in some sense and then came back to the oceans. How do, how do we know that and, and what does that mean?
0: Well, we know that from uh, phylogen- phylogeny and phylogenetic treats mm. and evolution of genes and genomes, that that's kind of a pathway. But in fact, they probably the ancestors probably never left water. So probably the ancestors were algae that eventually evolved into flowering plants in fresh water. Then some of them were oh, able see. to cope with dry conditions, but some of those freshwater plants that develop flowers and seeds and so on eventually went back into the ocean. So there's not necessarily a dry terrestrial ancestor, common mm-hmm. ancestor, mm-hmm. but very likely a freshwater ancestor to both uh, seagrass and flowering plants on uh, on land. But that that was a major uh, achievement that required a uh, significant re-engineering of the genome of flowering plants to be able to make it back into the sea. And one of the research that I was involved recently that uh, was the, the the paper that we eventually published was a, a cover page of the journal Nature, was on understanding how the genome of uh, flowering plants was re-engineered to allow them to be able to cope with their growth in the ocean. And what can we learn from that uh, ring in so that we can use it to allow other plants of interest like rice and other plants of interest to also be able to grow in in seawater.
1: Hmm. In 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 what ways did they adapt uh, to allow them to move into the ocean?
0: Yeah, so there were basically four families of uh, uh, changes that were required. Hmm. One change involved exchange of gases and solutes because. Uh, so basically, the flow of water in terrestrial plants is driven by evapotranspiration. So uh, transpiration and evaporation of water at the leaf level then creates a flow from the roots to the plant that is very essential essential for transport. But in the water, there is no need for that transport of, uh, of water. And also a molecular signaling between plants from uh, molecules that are released in the water don't have the same uh, capacity in uh, of transport, mm-hmm. so they don't play a role. So all of the uh, exchange of gases and uh, molecules that are volatile and go into the air and so on, and stomata, all of that was changed. Then there are no uh, insects in the ocean. Well, this, only five species of insects in the ocean, but none of them are herbivores, so we don't have the equivalent of pests that are able to uh, graze on plants on land, mm. and therefore they're um, rather protected from uh, grazers and pests compared to land plants. So all of the mechanisms of defense for pests and so on were not required, but also a consequence of not being insects in the water is there's also uh, no pollinators although that I need to uh, put a caveat on because recently has been found that there are some marine invertebrates that play a role in pollinating uh, seagrass. But the coevolution between uh, flowering plants and their pollinators that has led to the explosion of a species on land is not occurring to the same extent underwater and that also requires the evolution of new methods for the plants to be pollinated and eventually generate the uh, the the seeds, so there were uh, and obviously there there's a need to adapt to high levels of salinity, that also required acquisition of uh, different metabolic uh, compounds and uh, processes to be able to withstand and grow on full strength uh, uh, seawater.
1: Of seagrasses uh, and I think also mangroves. Uh, part of it has been described uh, in the, the blue carbon concept. Mm. So talk a little bit about what blue carbon is and and how seagrasses and mangroves and, and these other coastal areas play a role. In yeah,
0: that. yeah. I was a, I played I may say a central role in providing an understanding that these habitats, uh, mangroves and salt marshes and seagrasses. Mm-hmm have a very important role as very intense sinks for uh, carbon, which they accumulate in the sediments under these habitats. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, they all these habitats rank among the most intense carbon sinks in the biosphere. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they're being lost, and we probably have lost about half of the global extent of uh, seagrass, mangroves, and marshes because the shoreline has been converted into other uses of, uh, for instance, aquaculture ponds or urban areas, and also because there's been uh, deteriorations of water quality that have led to loss. So, whereas we had a very intense carbon sink in the shoreline, we have lost about 50% of that, mm-hmm. and that means that we have lost carbon sequestration potential. So, if we avoid future losses by protecting these habitats, and then are able to rebuild some through restoration actions, then we have an opportunity to uh, mitigate climate change and lock carbon back into the coastal sediments. Mm -hmm. And that strategy is what we label blue carbon that we introduced in 2009. And there's been uh, quite a steep uptake of that idea. And now it's a central component of the strategies towards climate change mitigation and adaptation of over 100 nations uh, globally.
1: Yeah, and, and erosion control is, is obviously a big issue around the world too. Are you able to possibly sell places on seagrass reintroduction, and, and how easy is it to reintroduce?
0: Much of the way uh, the carbon is lost to the atmosphere when the seagrass, all marshes, and mangroves are lost is not because of the loss of the capacity of the plants themselves, right. but it is that storage that has accumulated over millennia in the soils mm-hmm. that once the plant cover disappears, that is eroded and eventually decomposed back into carbon dioxide and goes to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So preventing the erosion of those stores of uh, carbon is uh, hugely important. Mm-hmm. So when we, once we lose the seagrass and salt marshes, it's really, really very important to restore these habitats immediately to prevent the sediment stocks to be lost. Mm-hmm. And that is very straightforward for mangroves. So for mangroves, is where uh, humanity has achieved uh, what I believe continues to be the largest ecosystem restoration ever undertaken by humans. And though that was the restoration of the Mekong Delta mangrove forest, which is about uh, 1,600 square kilometers wow. that were destroyed by the US Air Force during the Vietnam War with a very effective combination of herbicides and napalm. And then the Vietnamese people, on very simple means and resources, are replanted back all of that mangrove uh, around 10 years. And uh, we recently uh, suggested Vietnamese colleagues to look at the, at the impact of that restoration activity on carbon sequestration. And they calculated that the reforestation of the Mekong uh, mangrove forest uh was able to sequester carbon that was equivalent to i think it was a, a decade of emissions of vietnam so that again is a very important contribution to a climate change mitigation that would not have happened if that uh, mangrove forest would not have been uh, restored and restoring salt marshes is also very easy mm-hmm. so often salt marshes have been lost because uh, seawalls and other structures have been built to reclaim the area that was salt marsh for agriculture or convert it into a fresh water wetland. Mm-hmm. So all that it takes is to break down the, those sea walls and allow the tides to flood that coastal area again for salt marshes to be restored within a few years and by a decade then we have fully functional salt marshes with the many benefits we discussed. Mm-hmm. Seagrass restoration is a bit trickier but it's doable. Mm-hmm. And then we recently summarized about two decades of efforts on seagrass restoration and then developed clues for what work works and, and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So now we have much better guidelines as to how to achieve success in cigarettes restoration.
1: So, so perhaps some of the worry that we place on, um, like the Amazon as we do now, uh, we could solve some of those mm-hmm. issues with just more concerted Coastline uh, rehabilitation. Uh, yeah, w- well, I
0: think the discussion in the media around the fires in the Amazon's are a bit misguided. Yeah, because it's not really about oxygen or carbon; it's really about biodiversity. So what we're I losing see. through those fires is uh, we're experiencing huge losses in biodiversity, whereas the mm. public debate is focused on the on the lungs of the biosphere and oxygen and carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, But, in fact, the Amazons is uh, because when I was working on freshwater I also did work on the carbon budget of of land systems. Mm -hmm. So the Amazon is almost neutral in terms of uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen. So as much uh, CO2 is released from the Amazon as a basin as it is absorbed by the forest. So it is a zero-sum game, but the vital importance of the Amazon rests. On the unique biodiversity which is being burned
1: i see what are the knock-on impacts of losing that biodiversity
0: well um, i think it will be almost impossible to restore it because it's unique and endemic to that zone so it cannot be substituted by anything else mm-hmm. so there's a loss of life there's a loss of uh, genomic uh, legacy and um, for instance we know that the amazons contain thousands of plants and microbes that have been found to have natural products that are fundamentally important to resolve problems in human health and other elements. Mm -hmm. So we are losing those resources before we go to catalog them. And in terms of functionality, then we, we are also losing functions and resilience because although the relationship is not straightforward, usually high diversity leads to high resilience resilience against disturbances and when we lose something like the Amazon forest what we uh, have instead is something like a savanna-like ecosystem with very few species dominated the landscape which becomes then very very uh, uh, vulnerable to impacts from for instance climate change and other impacts because it doesn't really have the options to lay out one when, when one species is knocked down mm-hmm. then you have 20 others to replace them then you're basically reliant on that one to few species to to uh, perform the whole functions that are required right. for a healthy ecosystem right
1: and those are systems that are incredibly complex and hard to understand the full implications of them I'm assuming
0: yeah yeah and also the amazon is hugely vulnerable because the soil is extremely thin mm. And once this soil is burned, it's it's almost impossible that in any time, within let's say a reasonable human timescales, that soil is going to be built back again to the extent that it can support a, a pristine forest again.
1: Is there an analogous situation then with seagrasses and and mangroves that you see in terms of biodiversity?
0: Uh, yeah. In terms of biodiversity, absolutely. On if you wish, different scales but in terms of resilience Mm. it's far far easier to get back the mangroves the seagrass and the salmarses than to get back something like the like the amazons and in fact one of the research uh, directions that i'm taking recently is on the huge potential for the oceans to be able to repair itself Mm. if we give it a break i think we touch bottom Uh, around the turn of the century Hmm. in terms of impacts and loss. And since the turn of the century, we're still starting to see evidence of uh, a trend shift from loss to stabilization and even recovery. And then what I've been working in the past year and a half is to look at the scope for the ocean to repair itself and how long will it take and what is it that we need to do to be able to restore uh, ocean that is thriving with life, similar to what the oceans might have been around 1950 or before the Second World War.
1: Talk a little bit about the implications of seaweed. You were were sort of measuring the the drop of seaweed to the the sediment floor. What's important about that whole process?
0: Yeah, so we discussed blue carbon earlier. Right. And there is an elephant in the blue carbon room, (laughs) which is seaweed. I see. So we discussed uh, salt marshes, mangroves, and seagrass. Right. All of those are, all of those ecosystems, the basal species are flowering plants. Right. But then we also have seaweed. And the area of seaweed and the contribution to global production and carbon uptake is 10 times larger than all of the others combined. But uh, seaweed had been traditionally left out of that blue carbon conversation Mm -hmm. on the assumption that most seaweed like kelps and so on, they grow on rocky shores, which don't accumulate built up sediments and therefore the carbon is not accumulating there. But we have been challenging that idea over the past years. And then we published a first paper three years ago in Nature Geoscience where we provided anecdotal evidence that seaweed are actually sported globally and are found in the deep sea around the world. But that was based on uh, submersible uh, observations and kind of anecdotal evidence. Mm -hmm. But then we just published a paper two weeks ago where we were able to do a more systematic assessment of the presence and contribution of seaweed to carbon all around the ocean. And for that, we use a genomic approach. So in KAUST, uh, we have built a program in collaboration between the Red Sea Research Center and the Computational Bioscience Research Center that is called the Global Ocean Genome. So basically, we harvest all of the data, including uh, a lot of data that we contribute ourselves on ocean genomics and metagenomics, which is the genomics of entire ocean communities, not just one species. And then we uh, have developed systems to be able to mine and explore that massive amount of data using our supercomputer Sahin. So usually these data have been gathered to look at plankton and microbes in the ocean, Mm -hmm. and everything else is thrown in the garbage bin. So we actually looked in the garbage bin, and we found that the garbage bin was full of genes of interest. And those genes are not of plankton, they're not of microbes, but they are actually of seaweed, fish, and other organisms. So then we uh, looked in what uh, other researchers had discarded, and then we were able to track the presence of genes from uh, seaweed all around the ocean. And they're present everywhere, and we were able to quantify what, where are they present and what's the contribution and what species and groups of seaweed contribute most. And we dec- documented for the first time in a systematic, not anecdotal manner, that seaweed are major, major contributors to carbon stocks everywhere, including in the deep sea. So they definitely, much of that uh, production that is produced but not stored in sediments in the shoreline end, uh, ends up in the deep sea and contributes to carbon sequestration at a significant scale.
1: Wow! One man's trash is another man's research paper. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also a fair amount of carbon sequestration. What do you? What percentage? I mean, uh, I know it's an impossible scale, and I want to ask that question. But like, yeah. what percentage of carbon is getting fixed with these yeah. d- sort of deeper sea? Well,
0: I think that probably uh, a, a comparison that is relevant is that the contribution of seaweed to carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm which had been uh, ignored until our recent work, is probably as much as that of seagrass mangroves and salmarsas altogether. Wow. Yeah, so basically we double the inventory of blue carbon when we bring uh, seaweed into the picture. But it goes beyond that because, uh, so today I was entertaining uh, queries from uh, different reporters, from routers and others who have been looking at the research and, and are interested in that because now the global focus is on seaweed aquaculture. Because right. unlike mangrove, seagrass, and marshes, seaweed can be cultured at scale. They are grown in floating rafts, and right now there's about uh, close to 40 million tons that are produced annually, wow. 90% of that in Asia. And so far the focus has been on uh, human food and a few other applications. Mm -hmm. But that crop has also a significant uh, contribution to, potential to significantly contribute to climate change mitigation, and it's also scalable. So uh, we published some work on the potential of that that was picked up by the World Bank. And then they used our calculations and released a report whereby by using only 3% of the coastal ocean for seaweed farming, we could very much mitigate, contribute significantly to climate change mitigation at a global scale. In fact, the paper that has been released this week that has been combined by reporters with our paper is from the uh, colleagues in the University of California in Santa Barbara, which looked at the potential to uh, mitigate the greenhouse emissions from California through seaweed aquaculture, which now is non-existent. And they calculated that 3%, of the economic exclusive zone of California, if it had one, if it was used for seaweed agriculture, it could completely mitigate all of the emissions from California. So that is how significant this can be. And it's not only about climate change mitigation, it's also about many uses of this crop beyond uh, food for humans, because there's been recent uh, research that we've been involved on also that if you feed ruminants 1% of a seaweed diet, uh, uh, methane production can be shut down anywhere between 50 to 80%. And methane emissions from ruminant is, ruminants is a big contribution, big contributor to greenhouse emissions. And in fact, if, if you would uh, remove fences in uh, Ireland or or the UK and allow cows or sheep to uh, freely graze, they will go and graze on seaweed because when you have a a cow farm you have to put a block of salt so they leak that block of of salt but they will will, uh, spontaneously go and feed on uh, seaweed uh, by themselves. In fact there's an island in Ireland where sheep have have adapted themselves to eat seaweed and there's now a, a lot of focus on how how they do it because it is not 1% they eat only only seaweed those so they are kind of part of the aquatic food web those those sheep that's <laughs> tremendous they're probably loaded with omega 3 <laughs> healthy right healthy sheep i'm
1: floored <laughs> that this hasn't been more widely publicized
0: yeah and then, then there's also an emerging focus on seaweed as a replacement material for plastics, because they produce biopolymers that right. are quite similar to plastics in some ways, so right. many of the uses of plastics can be uh, uh, replaced by seaweed. So there's a company in uh, the U.S. called lollyrap that they are producing straws for uh, to drink beverages right. that are produced of seaweed, and the straws, are, seaweed the straws are flavored, so that when you are done uh, drinking your uh, beverage, then you can actually chew the, <laughs> the straw. And there's another company There's a startup from Georgia Tech uh-huh. that is actually producing flip-flops from seaweed. Right. Uh, so once you're done with your flip-flop and they break, rather than toss them, because the, the, origi- the original uh, motivation for that is that they did a cruise for pleasure in the Pacific, and they w- went to a remote island. It was full of flip-flops. So they were appalled and they wanted to come with an alternative. So see with flip-flops, once you're done with them, you can just bury them in the ground right. and then you contribute to climate change mitigation. <laughs> Carbon fixing uh, footwear. Right. Yeah, <laughs> flip-flops. Apparently the flip-flop market is worth something like $3 billion annually.
1: <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the wrong business. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at Sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.